Hi, my name's Brian, and like most of you, I'm staying at home during the pandemic. To pass the time, I decided to get some of my friends on the record about what they're cooking, how they're doing, and anything else that might be on their minds. Join me on What's Eating You. In today's episode, I welcome my bread benefactor, Blaze, to the show. If my memory of the last six months, or is it six years, if that memory is accurate, he's the last person I saw a live concert with. In this conversation, we chat about cooking, COVID, and a New Yorker's adaptation to a summer of social distancing. Let's see what wisdom he blesses us with today. Blaze, I got to welcome you as a sought-after guest for What's Eating You. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this afternoon. Brian, thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming, I think, and uh, I'm thrilled to be here. It has. I mean, as, as quarantine times go, I think we, we pinpointed just a couple seconds ago that you and I last saw each other at probably the last concert either of us were at. Correct. In, in no small capacity venue either. It was, uh, what was it? Bowery? It was... Uh, the ballroom. Yeah. But it was like, it was definitely not social distance. Let's put it that way. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, shout out to Glassnet Records for um, letting us see Two Door Cinema Club. But it's unthinkable that now suddenly, you know, like what, it feels like three years ago, but probably six months ago, we, you know, we had a different kind of life. And here we are. You, you live in New York, you know, so you've been in the epicenter for some time now. Um, how is it up there? So I've been hanging out in the epicenter and it's weird and I have a remarkably, I think, different perspective than a lot of people have because I live my own anyway. And I think Corona has just not necessarily changed my life that much. It's just pivoted how I deal with my normal day-to-day interactions. So like good example of it is I can generally walk to work on a good day. And now I'm just commuting to my desk, which is fine in my apartment. And that's okay. But like, on any given day, I normally would just commute to work, get out late at night, hit the gym, go back home, log back on. And a lot of those intermediate steps have been cut out. So work-wise, not that much change. And I think social-wise, the change has been more manifest in the person-to-person interactions on like the weekend and things like that than it has been for me on a day-to-day, weekday basis. Maybe that's just, for me, I don't go out on weekdays normally. I tend to work out late at night. That's just how I roll. But you definitely see it in, like, there's no longer, like, happy hour is not really a thing anymore. It's not a, like, hey, let's meet up at the bar. That's definitely gone away. And it's it's interesting, I think, for people who, other people could speak to this. For me, that hasn't impacted my life that much. So it's not a big deal. I think a lot of people are starting to reassess the way that they interact throughout the course of the week with other people. You know, we're finding out a lot about it. Unclear how it's going to result. I think that's, I think it's right. And to be clear, you're in New York City, obviously. And, and, I, and, you know, it's July now, right? And New York probably has had one of the earliest and longest periods. We'll talk about the beginning maybe of quarantine in a minute for you. But what's New York City like in July right now? The crazy thing about New York right now is the way in which they changed to adapt. I biked up Third Avenue yesterday evening and 
they've now opened outdoor dining officially, which has led to them closing off maybe probably one or two, a lane on each side of, so Third Avenue, as an example, has five lanes ordinarily, two of which are used at any given time for parking on one side of the street or the other. Those two lanes on the east and west side of Third Avenue are now being blocked off by different bars or restaurants that have set up tables out there and are doing outdoor dining. And it's amazing. It's kind of like any of the listeners who've ever spent significant time in Europe or visited that they do, their sidewalks are bigger, specifically like Spain. I lived for a while in Valencia and they've already figured out how to accommodate that. We didn't really figure that out in New York. We never had to. And so now they're solving that by closing lanes of street traffic. But it's actually great. For my part, I hope that that aspect of it stays, even after we're done with coronavirus. Because three weeks ago, you had people able to do takeout drinks and all that stuff. And people were getting mad about flouting regulations because everyone would congregate outside of bars. Because what bars had done was to essentially take their indoor bar, push it up against their big bay windows, and now they've set up a bar that's to-go only, and they're doing to-go drinks. And people are congregating outside the bars that do to-go drinks. I mean, it was amazing that you could get to-go drinks and just hang out on the street, but it's also not the safest. And now they've opened officially to doing outdoor dining. So now it's kind of been institutionalized, and you're allowed to sit there and sit at tables. And it's honestly kind of great. Everyone's sitting outside. They're sitting pretty far apart. There doesn't seem to be anybody that's really like trying to make it crazy. And it's just, it's kind of nice. You're like, you start thinking about like, how much traffic do we need? How much space do we need? Can we make sidewalks bigger? Can we adopt the European model? I hope some of the changes stay. So they've tried to open up outdoor dining. They postponed indoor dining in New York which I think was the right move. But honestly, times like this in the summer, it's been really nice. I think that's that's great to hear, actually, because we're having a similar experience here. Like you said, New Jersey and New York are kind of twinned in their policymaking and and the pacing, it seems like, of a lot of the decisions. And, you know, and I think a lot of restaurants similarly here are being really innovative about the service and the experience that people get. And I think it's it's almost undeniably safer. But the fact that it's workable is... And like you said, in some ways, better is you know, higher quality has been really, really good. It's, so the problem is it's not going to be sustainable, right? It's like a little bit of, I don't think there's really any good timing for a global pandemic, but timing-wise, it's summer. So we've been able to have outdoor dining, which is really great. I think it's going to help people readjust and get into the flow. Come next winter when we don't have or if we don't have a vaccine okay now you can't eat outside right now really what are we doing how are we handling people interacting indoors in bars where you typically be especially in new york city packed in spaces that are printed there are bars and i'm sure even though texas and california are hard hit now there's just more space like you could have 50 percent capacity at a bar in texas and still have plenty of people there, and I think that place would survive. Places in New York, if you 
start limiting them to 50%, 25% people. It's just, you're not going to have enough people in the door to support business. So whole new set of challenges, I think, when you're not able to utilize outdoor space. But for now, let's take advantage. Let these people like open it up. And I think people are starting to realize that there's been a whole host of options and other things that we can do that have been previously unutilized. And they're starting to figure it out. It's clearly working. So I hope they, I hope they keep it going, going forward. I don't think anyone has complained about unruly or more unruly behavior due to people walking around with drinks in New York. Aside from your typical, like, okay, there's some people who are getting a little too drunk and belligerent, like that happens all the time. But in terms of people just being able to get a to-go drink, you walk around, the cops aren't enforcing open container laws. And so far, I haven't heard anything terrible. So like, let's, let's figure this out. Why can't we do this going forward? Seems kind of nice. This is like a New Yorker ethos though, right? Like I know, like you said, we're looking at other parts of the country that were maybe slower to close. And New York, you know, again, not everybody's top priority or top you know, wishes, but you know, people followed the masking and the social distancing. And like you said, it seems like this responsibility is carrying over to, you know, open containers or, you know, other activities and people are really, are still managing, managing, I think pretty well, right? Through, through these weird times. Everyone seems to be doing fine. There is, there's a little bit of, there's some heightened sensitivity around whether or not you're wearing your mask and what are the rules and how far away are you? And it's a little bit interesting. It kind of exposes people's underlying phobias or how willing they are to take a little bit more risk. It's now become commonplace to kind of ask if there's somebody else in the elevator, whether they mind if you get in the elevator. And for my part, I wear my mask in the elevator. And if anybody asks me, I say, I'm fine, right? You can get me, I'm okay, right? Don't worry about it on my account. But I do ask, especially if somebody looks like they're elderly or they might look uncomfortable. you know, now it's become commonplace to ask. So that's new. And a little bit weird, most people in New York seem to be very understanding of like what the rules are and how they're supposed to be enforced and obeyed. But like, I don't always wear my mask when I'm just walking around, which you're not required to. The rule is you have to wear your mask inside and when you can't otherwise social distance. And that's a totally valid rule and it's fine. I'm happy to follow it but I'll be walking on my own and not wearing a mask and you'll walk past somebody sometimes doesn't happen often not within six feet of them not even close and they look at you askew like if you're doing something wrong and I'm like guys like <laughs> um, the whole point is we're staying six feet apart and if you're six feet apart you don't need to wear the mask that's what this is designed to prevent and so I think some people just get into a phobia mindset and that i don't think is helpful but it seems to be few and far between most people recognize it like hey you're on your own you're out for a run you're on a bike you like you don't need to be masked up the entire time but it is a couple of people I, it's it's kind of funny when they look so phobic and just like i kind of want to give them a little bit of reassurance like that's gonna be okay i'm no i'm nowhere close to you I'll, I mean, you're talking like you're talking like across the street or an eye shot. You know, you're, you're visible to one another, but you're not. Yeah. So, so, so a really good example is I was. Well, I tend to 
now and like getting my getting exercise and trying to get out more i'll take phone calls as i'm walking around the city and so i'll call my parents as i'm walking around and it's you know kill 20 30 40 minutes so i was out a couple of weeks ago and started pouring rain and so i stood underneath some scaffolding on the street and standing there on a corner by myself for upwards of 15 minutes talking to my parents waiting for a thunderstorm to pass and a woman starts walking towards me from three blocks away and she sees me i see her it's like no big deal i've been standing on this corner for 15 minutes already and she keeps walking towards me i don't have my mask on because i'm the only person within you know a two block radius so why do i need to wear my mask she keeps walking towards me and she ultimately walked had to be within three or four feet of me and then said you should be wearing your mask and i'm like well i mean okay if you (laughs) if you were that worried about it she had three full blocks to decide how close she wanted to walk to me if she had stopped a block away and said hey can you cross the street i would have crossed the street instead she walked seemingly purposely close to me and then yelled at me for not wearing my mask and i was like that's kind of seems like a big you decision, right? Like, and I, <laughs> and I, like really went out of her way and kind of to scold me. And I was like, that's not cool. Like, what, like, I'm happy I have my mask. I'm happy to obey the rule. But like you, in my mind, put yourself in quote unquote danger, right? Like that was, you had a lot of chances to avoid this interaction and you didn't. And instead went out of your way to scold me. And that's not great. So that I think should be avoided, but most people seem to not be taking that approach. Yeah, that, that's interesting because, like you said, that contrasted with the elevator example. It's like there seemed to be developing, maybe not solidified, but developing some kind of like social conventions. And, you know, I think, like you said, even you yourself asking people, hey, would this be like, where are you on this? You no, you you, you should ask and be respectful. And look, your view might not be the same as anybody else's view, right? And I think you and I were talking about this before, and we can get into this too, because I've had COVID and had the antibodies. So, so my worldview is much different, I think, than somebody who is afraid of getting it. My sole focus is on prevention and making everybody else comfortable. And so that's a lot different than somebody, I think, who has a fear of contracting it. And I definitely appreciate that fear. And so I think you need to be understanding of that. And more people are going to have to be understanding of it as we go forward. Because the scales are going to tip. It's going to come to a point where either more people have been exposed or more people have had it. And then the smaller the population that has not been exposed, those people are going to have greater fear. Because mm-hmm. they're going to realize that, like, okay, my, now my chances of exposure are increasing, right? As more people have it, now I'm in a much smaller community of people who have not been exposed. And it's unlikely I'm going to be able to have any interaction that's not going to involve someone who has exposure. Or even risked of it. Yeah, exactly. Risk, risk of it, right. Yeah, you can be asymptomatic. It's, it's going to be an interesting... That, that's a good opportunity, I think, to, to hear more. As, you know, like you said, you learned recently that you had COVID. Or at least the antibody. Yeah. So good opportunity to explain kind of like how I exist in the city and why it's maybe not surprising that I was among the first people to be exposed to and get COVID. And 
listened to your most recent podcast guest and she was talking about her pretty terrible experience with it. And to my benefit, and unfortunately for a lot of people, I had one of the better COVID experiences. I work in the MetLife building above Grand Central. And so one of the things we've been kind of dealing with as we strive to reopen is you just can't limit the number of people that you in theory will come in contact with going to a place like Grand Central. It's why people who are commuting can't necessarily control things and like it's going to take a lot longer I think for us to get comfortable in our offices than people originally thought but back at the beginning of March when this thing first happened one of the first known cases of exposure in New York City was a man at a synagogue in White Plains there was a person who was at my law firm who's a member of that synagogue he's always tested negative so we know that we didn't get it from him but it just made you realize that person who did test positive commuted on the Metro North into Grand Central and then went to work at their firm on I think it was Third Avenue or something. And so now all of a sudden you realize how big this chain is. How many people does this person sit within 15 or 20 feet of, right? And if you're playing six degrees of separation, the contact tracers, their job is already that they, they're never going to find all the people that this person ostensibly could have passed it to. And so very early in March, right around the time when our firm shut down, maybe about a week after that, I went for a run. Again, it was really cold and I got back from the run. And as typical, after you get back from the run in the cold, I've got a runny nose, can't smell that much, stuffed up, fine. I wrote it off. A couple of days later, Still couldn't smell, now couldn't really taste. And that's when I realized, okay, started reading the symptoms. COVID, again, I had no other symptoms, no fatigue, no nausea, no, no anything. I could breathe. I felt 100% except for the fact that I couldn't smell or taste anything. Bizarre. Kind of let it go, was watching the advice that they gave on the news, which was, hey, if you have symptoms and are, if they're debilitating symptoms, you should go to the emergency room. If not, stay home and manage your symptoms because there's nothing we can do for you. There's no cure. There's no, if you don't need a ventilator, basically, don't go to the hospital. It was kind of my takeaway from the advice that was being given. And so I did. And so I'd been to the grocery store. I had plenty of food and I just stayed home for two weeks at least. And I just hung out. I had, luckily, I mean, I was working, I had plenty to do, and I just chilled for two weeks. I lost a bunch of weight, because when you're not <laughs> smelling or tasting, you don't like, you don't feel an obligation to eat. I mean, it was, it was fine. I was, I was like, this is awesome. I'm just I, gonna, look, I look great. It's amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to tone up for summer. Uh, <laughs> and so at the end of maybe like two or three weeks, I was like, okay, this symptomatic period should have passed now. Right. I felt confident that even though some of the symptoms lingered and I probably, and it was very weird. Like I learned, it was like learning to smell and taste again. Really? That, yeah. It was like my brain forgot how to do it. What was it like telling what, telling what these flavors or smells were? Like what was this? What was that? Kind like? of. So I, there's, there's never been a more bizarre feeling I've had than eating something and knowing what it should taste like and actually not tasting it. Like my mind could remember what it should taste like. And I wasn't experiencing that taste. 
So, like, what were you eating? What did you have in quarantine to eat that it was? I'm just trying. I'm Honestly, curious just, something something as simple as pepper, as like ground pepper. I would open my pepper shaker and smell it, and I couldn't smell anything, but my mind knew what it was supposed to smell like. Did you sneeze? And it, I had this. I had this. You know, it was kind of like hitting me on the inside of my head. Like, you know what this is supposed to taste like, and it doesn't. It was, or smell like it, it was bizarre. It was one of the most bizarre feelings I've had in my entire life. Wow. Um, so that, it, but eventually it did come back and it passed. And that was the only symptom I had. No taste, no smell. A couple of weeks, like it ended up being like three or four weeks as it slowly came back. But it was, and so then a couple of weeks after that, I went and got the antibodies test. When they, they started opening up the city MDs to let everyone in the door and get tested. So I went and got the antibody test. I got the actual test. I was negative for the actual, but positive for the antibodies, which just affirmed what I thought all along. And I was like, it, it was definitely a weird experience. I wish everyone could have COVID in the same way I did. That would be amazing, right? If we could somehow figure out a way to expose people to COVID and they all, all they do is lose taste and smell for a while, that would be amazing. Unfortunately, it's not what's happening. Seriously. But that's the scary part of it. How it affected me is not how it affects everyone else. And that's why, like... Sorry, like, you were saying, the other key thing there is that, you know, like you said, there was really almost no way for you to know or figure out when and how you might have been exposed, right? Like, it could come for any of us. But once you were aware, like you said, the protocols were in place for you to follow that could help eliminate the rest of other people to have that same kind of I mean, so so what were they saying that you, how how early was COVID in New York? I think it was like mid-February. They finally like traced it back early to mid-February. And this was early March. So they finally, like that people started getting sick and they realized what was going on. I mean, I was going to the gym up until March 12th, 14th, you know, whatever that weekend was. Because I know because they canceled all the St. Patrick's Day stuff. <laughs> like in that week leading up to it, I, I mean, I was going to the gym. On the last day that I had my office open, the gym was still open. So I went to the gym on my way home. Like nobody knew any better, which is like, again, like who knows where I might've been exposed. No, I think the numbers, it's a little bit scary. It's maybe a little bit beneficial at this point. The numbers have got to be a lot higher than I think even anyone thinks. Again, might be a good thing, right? Especially in New York where we knock on wood, you know, fingers crossed, hit our peak earlier. I'm hopeful that a lot of people have been exposed because honestly, the numbers, and I think, I think people have focused on the wrong numbers in a lot of ways because they talk about the percentage of positive tests. They talk about the hospitalization numbers. They talk, but in my mind, I think they're doing a little bit of a disservice because what we actually want at this point is for positive tests to go up and hospitalizations to stay low, right? Because that should, we're not gonna contain it. Everyone knows that at this point. So all we can hope for is more mild cases. So at this point, if hospitalizations stay low and positive tests go through the roof, we should be thrilled, I think, right? Like I, in my mind, that just makes sense, but you know. Yeah, if we, if we see the opposite or the, in, or the or we see the correlation, if we see tests go up and hospitalizations go up, then, you know, then it gets even harder. Right. I mean, and so your friend Rose was saying on the podcast previously that like she was in shape and she, you know, 
still contracted this. And that like, that's part of the, that's the scary part to me. Mm. Again, I don't know what the correlation is hearing someone like Rose say that because I was in shape and it was fine and it hit me super mildly. It was great, right? I, again, like I caught the lucky end of <laughs> the COVID strain, but it shouldn't diminish what people need to do and appreciate for the disease. Again, like I'm thrilled and happy to wear my mask, ask questions of people getting to Elk Lake, do what you're supposed to do, right? Would I love for the gym to reopen? Absolutely. Am I going to be okay working out outside and in my apartment? Because that's not practical right now. Absolutely. So just like, I don't know. Part of me says to figure it out, but part of me also just, I live my life on my own. Yep. I don't have any dependents. Yep. I talk to my parents, but I don't necessarily need to go see them. Yep. So I'm, I live a very egocentric form of COVID. So that's like an entirely different thing that we can talk about. But yeah, so my experience has been different. It hasn't, you know, really affected my life, but it's definitely out there affecting a lot of people in way, way more serious ways than me. So you have to appreciate that, even if it doesn't like necessarily at home for you. Yeah, man. I mean, you're in a lot of ways, you're COVID goals, you know, right? Like I was joking with even my first guest to say like, I'm probably going to get it eventually. I definitely didn't want to be the person who gets it during the peak, because if you did get it bad, you'd have, you know, it would be harder to probably get proper care. Well, have you, I mean, have you talked all, I mean, there are all these people who are having, they're having parties. They're like, oh, like we should expose ourselves to it. Right. On the theory that they'll get it like I had it and just beat it. Right. And better to be exposed. I feel at some level, I'm extremely lucky to have been exposed to it in such a mild manner. Now I do feel like I have a little bit of immunity. I'm like, okay, this is great. I can do what I want. And I understand that, but you never know what like the curveball is going to throw at you. Mm. So like, yeah, maybe like, again, you think you're young and in shape and that's going to be fine. And all that needs to happen is you're the outlier, mm-hmm. that 1% of people who get it and get very sick and it's not going to be fucked around with. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's the brightest idea to try and purposely give yourself a disease. I, I think that's, that's a great perspective, actually, because you're, like you said, you're threading the needle there with, like, on one hand, you had it, you had a mild case, but you're also, like, you're well aware of the reality of this thing and how it spreads. Oh, yeah. The fact that it can have disparate impact, and you're like, look, these measures make sense. Like you said, you, you're you glad you had this case, but not everyone can, is going to have that. You know, we got to... We got to plan for the for the worst. Yeah. So anyway, that's um, that's my whole COVID experience. Looking forward to the day when we get, <laughs> I guess, back to my office. I guess I miss my office, which is a weird thing to say, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I was gonna say I want to. I think the other thing people need to hear about is how um, it's funny. All this stuff is happening at the same time, but back in in it might have been February even February or March, I um, yep. asked you you know, sort of how your February was going. And because, you know, people may not know this, but, you know, you introduced me to something called Dry February. <laughs> so I always check in on you, so, how Dry February is going. So I try and do, um, I try and do a couple of, whether it's like one or two, at this point, this year is probably three dry spells a year. Started when I was lightweight growing at Princeton and we take the whole season off of drinking. 
as much of a like commitment to performance as much as it was a alcohol at calories adds weight <laughs> every every pound and every calorie counts when you're trying to be in the lightweight boat but for me it's it's an opportunity to reset kind of like january yeah okay it's nice a lot of people do new year's resolutions they take january off it's fine for me i do i tend to do february but you always have to People will laugh, they'll say, oh, it's the shortest month, obviously, that's why I do it. But the important thing for me, I only really drink on the weekends, is to do four weekends. So whatever that stands, if that goes into March, if it has to start in January, whatever it is, take four weeks, including four weekends off. My favorite month to do is actually April, because I think that having a goal helps you. And so for me, it's like, yeah, you could take, time off of drinking in January or February, but you're going to be back to drinking, you know, heavy beers and all that stuff by the time <laughs> spring and summer rolls around anyway. You do it in April, you can kind of see spring and summer coming on the horizon. You're like, oh, I should get in shape. It's adding the motivating factor of having summer on the horizon helps you. But yeah, I don't, for me, it's an opportunity to reset. I think it helps me get my mind right. It helps me kind of, I don't know, it helps me reassess, I think, like my relationship with how I socialize and how I do a lot of other stuff. I think you were talking with Rose on your previous podcast about the role that like going to the bar plays. And like, okay, I, I think you said, it, I was like, okay, like I have beer at home. That's fine. I, you know, we drink beers all day long, especially somewhere like New York, the bar is a social outlet. That's where you go. I love having a bunch of friends who are active and we'll do a lot of other stuff. Like we'll go rock climbing in the morning or we'll do but like the vast majority of your socializing still happens at a bar. And look, is that like the absolute best thing in the world? Maybe not. If we lived in Colorado, Boulder, Denver, could we be doing more like group runs or skiing or whatever. Like, yeah, probably. But we live in an urban jungle. <laughs> so like, how am I going to see everyone? Oh, I'll meet you down at the bar. Right. Like, and so, but taking a couple of months off every year kind of helps. It's like, it gets you out of that. Oh, I just had to go to the bar or, Oh, I had to go to happy hour Fridays when it helped me kind of reassess where I was ending up Friday at like 5 p.m. So when you're not drinking, our firm runs a, they call it Martini Friday, but it's like, they do a great job. They do a whole scene every week. They do an open bar up in one of the big conference rooms. And it's great. It's an amazing social outlet for everyone at the firm. And you feel this compulsion to go at five or 5.30. And if I'm not drinking, I'll go hang out there for 20 or 30 minutes. I'll say hi to everyone. I still get the same kind of positive social interaction. I don't drink anything. I go back and do some more work for an hour. And then I go to the gym at eight o'clock, like I normally would. I don't like, in a weird way, I don't feel diminished. It's not like, oh, I wasn't hanging out, getting, you know, on other nights, you could be at that happy hour at like 4.30, <laughs> absolutely wrecked by sick. And you're just like, which is fun too, and that's great. Okay, like I don't need to be, right? Like 
and then that translates into other times when I'm not, when I am drinking, I'm not on a dry month of like, wow, like I really need to go to the happy hour at five o'clock, right? Let me maybe just finish up my work. I'll go home, I'll shower, I'll have a drink. I'll go out to the bar at, you know, eight or nine, right? Like, do I need to be drunk at 5 p.m.? Probably not, right? <laughs> it's just, it, it helps you get into a better mindset. So that's how it started and that's where it ended up. And I think it's just a nice, like, a nice reset to the system. That's a, a much deeper uh, explanation than we usually, usually we internalize that. This is, this is uh, three months of, of alone time to think about this uh, probably coming out, but like I said, when I called you, I remember you hadn't even started, but you sort of mentioned that you were then just baking a lot of bread to fill your, like you said, all this newfound time since you weren't burning four or five hours down down the pub. But you are, just, just for all the listeners because who think that I'm the bread guy, you are actually my bread inspiration, bread inspiration. Um, the reason for my baking, the benefactor of my Dutch oven, in fact recipe so, book and method book that I use, you, you are the reason. So, so not, <laughs> so, so not drinking doesn't do you with more time, right? You end up waking up earlier, <laughs> you have a lot more hours to fill. And so I think everyone at some basic level has always had a bread benefactor. And so I was lucky enough to be your bread benefactor after I had a wonderful person who is my bread benefactor. His name is Max, who married a fantastic friend of mine and an acquaintance of yours back from Princeton, uh, Rachel. And it really started, it started with baking, just like random treats. So I was jilted into entering a, they call it a cookie exchange, but it's just one of those like inter-office things where everyone bakes, you know, they, you submit a recipe, you bake a bunch of cookies, everyone gets together around the holidays, exchanges recipes and shares what they bake. So I got guilted into this by a lot of the secretaries at work. And one of the things that I low key hate about my job is that I, I actually love to cook and I don't cook ever. And so I moved into my apartment in Gramercy and probably didn't turn on the oven for a full four or five years. And then the only time I started to turn it on was when I got guilted into this baking cookie exchange and decided I was like, well, if I'm gonna do it, we're going to absolutely do it. And so the first year that I did it, I had to not only buy baking ingredients for the recipe that I wanted to make, I had to go buy the basic elements of everything. All cookware. I had, to, I had pictures. Wow. Show you of just like, I walked into Bed Bath & Beyond with not only the recipe, but like everything, all the hardware circled. And I was like, I need this pan. <laughs> wow. I, I, need, I needed like potholders. I mean, I needed, I needed everything. I needed a measuring cup. Like I, I didn't have teaspoon. I didn't have anything. Honestly, I just, I needed to go get the basic elements of. What, what, what did you have in your house? Uh, like forks and knives basically? Like, no, nothing. I didn't have anything. <laughs> I had like a, you know, I had two sets of fry pans for making eggs. And rocks and rocks, <laughs> and rocks glasses. And I was, I was pretty much it. I have a full set of glassware. I've always had a full <laughs> bar set up. That was, that was not deniable. But, but in terms of cooking, I mean, you're living in a studio apartment in Manhattan. I'm not you know, <laughs> grilling steaks and doing all this stuff. So I had almost nothing. I've, in fact, I think I mentioned to you on our talk before, one of the worst things about the pandemic has been 
I have to cook food for myself and get <laughs> keep the basic elements of food in my apartment. Whereas normally I just eat 90% of my meals at my desk on <laughs> time. So that's, that's been a challenge. It takes a long time to cook food, by the way. I didn't realize how much time I took out of my day. <laughs> a, lot, a lot more than a phone call downstairs, yeah. I'm, I'm way less efficient at having to cook my own meals. Anyway, so, so this all started with baking. Max and Rachel are just unbelievably fantastic people. And they host a Christmas party every year. And so when I started this whole baking thing, I would bake extra because the cookie exchange always happened around the same time as our party. I would, I would always bring them whatever I was baking for the cookie exchange. And I always got put to shame by Max, who is an incredible baker and also an incredible bread maker. And so for a couple of years, we kind of like swapped dessert recipes and I'd bring them cookies and he'd reciprocate. And over the last like two or three years, I would walk into their apartment and he always had these incredible loaves of bread. And I was just like, it seemed so unattainable to me. I'm like, how he, and he, he has a much nicer apartment than me. So that's like, he has more space and more like the ability to do more things. But it just seemed crazy to me that he could make such cool loaves of bread and have this skill while in a Manhattan apartment. And he was like, look, it's, it's not like that difficult. You can pull it off. It's more of a commitment, like you said, of like time and resources and your energy than it is of actual space or circumstance. And so for Christmas, I guess this year, last year, it's all blurred together. He got me a seven quart Dutch oven and a book by Ken Forkish called Flour, Water, Salt, Yeast for anyone who wants to buy it. Uh, it's an incredible book. I recommend it. And he was like, look, this is all you need to do this. You're going to like read the book, follow the instructions, it's going to work out. And so I started. And it was, for someone who's OCD like me, actually extremely helpful. Because hmm. the book is so specific. Yeah, and very. so like, for someone who approaches cooking as a, you know, laissez-faire activity and like I'm just going to throw in what I want to when I want to not the activity for them but for someone who's supremely focused on temperatures and times and exact measurements this is the activity for you so I started baking bread and I was both shocked at its simplicity and thrilled at the I guess I was thrilled at like the variations that could come from it, right? It was like, it didn't take much to bake a simple loaf of bread. And that was maybe like 20 pages of the whole book. It's like, okay, now, now I've done this. And he starts talking about hydration and flour content and protein and like all this stuff. And you're just like, oh my God, this has, the possibilities are quite literally endless. And then the other thing that was amazing and has come up more and more in the pandemic time is I've now created a sustainable food source, essentially, right? You and I have talked about this, about like the sourdough starter, and you have one. I can't keep one because it just it takes up too much space yeah. in my refrigerator on my counter. But honestly, for the price of, you know, $3 worth of flour, you can continue to create bread on an ongoing basis. I mean, it's like it's gonna go forever 
you keep feeding it, you will perpetually have the ability to feed yourself. And so bring it back full circle, Max was my bread benefactor. And when I started doing it, I've now just realized how cool it is and give it to everyone I know. This has become my new gift to anyone who doesn't do it. I sent my sister a Dutch oven in the book. I sent one to you. And you have far outstripped me in terms of the versatility that you use the book for and how you approach bread making. You make pizza, you make rolls, you make every, like all I do is make the same kind of like basic <laughs> recipe of bread. And then I don't even eat it. I give it away. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I'm not a big bread guy. But um, still, the gift of bread, yeah. though, my dad does this too. It gives it what, like, people take it like it's gold. It's actually really rewarding, right? Like, and you've gifted far more loaves than I have already, but the, the response so I, is incredible. I give it to, uh, there's a partner at my firm who just had his first child, and he's, he's been my mentor at the firm for a couple of years. And I always bring him loaves of bread. So you make two loaves in every batch essentially and i i just text my friends i'm like hey bacon bread who wants some right <laughs> it's to me the satisfaction is in making it mm. honestly mm. i like and it's what's nice about ken Forge's book and the recipe and the way it looks is it's artisanal and there's some for for someone who's just creating it for the sake of creating it there's something nice about creating an artisanal loaf it comes in the crisp and the shape and just how it, honestly, how it looks. There's something really nice. It looks like it could belong in a display case in a French bakery. And that's like achieving that kind of, it's not perfection because it's imperfect, which is great. It's different mm -hmm. every time. Mm -hmm. But achieving that kind of result is mm -hmm. fantastic. And after that, once it's done and it's out and I achieved it, I'm thrilled to give it away. <laughs> It's just like this partner that uh, that I work with is a great guy. He and his wife have like obviously been quarantined with their new baby. So anything you can do to help that, yeah. bring them bread. And it, like it's, it goes so far. And I think like you said, people realize that it's a gift that it takes some time and some effort. Like I think going forward, I'm going to be bringing more bread to parties. Like where you would normally bring wine. I think if you bring fresh loaf of bread and just hit up the host before you go there and say, hey, like, FYI, I'm going to bring a loaf of bread, right? So if you were planning to go to the supermarket and buy stuff or you've got a dip, you've got cheese, you've got whatever, like, hey, I'm bringing you a fresh loaf of bread. Don't even worry about that. I'll sort this. I think that's so, it's so much more it's not more thoughtful, but it's, they know that you put your own time effort into that. And I think it makes it a little bit more meaningful. No, dude, that's, that's incredible. That's profound. You're right. Because the fastest you can probably do it is what, maybe 12 hours, eight to 12 hours, maybe is the fastest you could do this. And so, like you said, you got to know, right. You got to know you're doing it and you got to plan it and you got to even just like that commitment. And it's, I think at a very base level, it's like, it's thought and care, right? Like, hey, I thought enough about this that I wanted to do it and put my time and effort into it instead of just, hey, I stopped the liquor store and yeah. over here. And I got you guys a bottle of wine, right? Like, okay, 
uh, again, huge wine guy. Like you should bring wine anyway. <laughs> bring, bring both. Bring both. Why choose? But right. <laughs> but you know, and and that's what was so great about like so when Max kind of gifted me a Dutch oven in the book, it was like it meant a lot. It's like he and I had had these discussions about how cool it was that he baked bread and what kind of commitment that took. And like you're talking about people who have very little time on their hands. <laughs> His wife is a partner at an incredible firm. He now works at a great investment company as a tax lawyer. It's just like you're talking about people who have taken like kind of the little time that they have and hmm. put it into this, right? And so that I think makes a lot of difference. Mm-hmm. So the point is, for everyone who's listening, get a bread benefactor and then be a bread benefactor. Yeah, I have to think about who I'm going to pay it forward to because, like you said, I've given some loaves and the response, like I said, I didn't expect it in a certain way. Like, maybe, I don't know, maybe you, I did this to you, but like, just, and I haven't given you a loaf because I feel like you produce all the bread you need, but, and the fact that it's like a gift that gives, whether you're getting a loaf and you can like slice up and turn it to yeah. and sandwiches or whether you have an oven that you can make a thousand loaves in, you know, it's like. So what, so what were you, t- you were telling me that you, you now have a starter. You have a sourdough starter. I have two somehow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like right. So, so I've read two. I read two articles recently about because uh, you can dehydrate starter, and apparently this woman has been mailing out starter <laughs> to people, which is like, again, you talk about like the gift that keeps on giving. You can keep sourdough starter or any kind of starter alive for centuries, and some of them have been. And you just like, apparently, it's a status thing in Silicon Valley now having mm. the oldest sourdough starter. Wow. So I don't again, it's it's difficult where I am to have it and keep it because you have to feed it so much on a daily basis and just kind of for everyone who's listening and doesn't like kind of understand bread making, you can have a sourdough starter that's basically just like a early stage yeast water composite and yeast flour water composite and you just keep feeding it fuel which is bread flour every day but you need to have a big enough vessel to allow it to grow day after day you have to keep it in a relatively temperature controlled area it just it's it's a lot (laughs) and so i don't have the time attention or patience or space to do it brian does and he's been causing a starter for some time now which is why he's far outstripped me. And, um, uh, I'll <laughs> say making capacity. I, I think it's interesting. First, two things. One, I was like you and that I was really following the rules. And in fact, a, it was a different set of, so I've, I've branched off from the Ken Forkish tree, which I still love and appreciate. It's my recipes. I go to those to start. But King Arthur Flour, yeah. which is our, which is, I think you and I both a, a sort of preferred brand has a ton of also really good recipes. And I, I use them for my starter guide. And I have another friend who does a lot of sourdough bake. He actually doesn't even use factory yeast. He does exclusively sourdough stuff, which I'm not comfortable with because I don't love the rise I get out of it. But um, huh. he, he was basically like, let go a little bit. He was like, look, it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be um, fed every 12 hours. It doesn't have to be super basically as rich. Yeah. And so for me, that's actually what's helped me is that sometimes I let it go a little longer without feeding it. Sometimes I, you know, like I'm on it regularly, but at the end of the day, as long as you can like survive its reawakening, 
basically just doing it regularly lets you know when it will be back. It's real, yeah. It's really funny that you mentioned that because so what Brian for anyone who is listening and wants to know what the difference between like production yeast in your starter and a natural is is you there's yeast in a lot of like there's a naturally yeast existing in the flour that you're going to use and so you don't actually need to add yeast to a sourdough starch get to start multiplying you can just use the natural yeast in the flour in the air so that's kind of the difference there and so purists i think say you should never add yeast to your starter they just want to start naturally and it's it's, yeah. it's considered <laughs> cheating it's considered you, gauche you get you get you, you go down a whole, you go down a whole rabbit hole of <laughs> ways that people want to be bread purists but it's really funny that you talk about having the ability to experiment and do the things that you want to do with bread and with the recipes and with your starter and like like you said as long as you can bring it back to life there aren't that many rules right like i like rules i'm a big ocd guy well but i i like i like somebody i like to know how many hours I, and that's why again you said like ken's book is great because it tells you hey this many hours at this many degrees this temperature this is people, right it's so, like, yeah, it's so technical and if you're cognizant of it it produces results that's great uh but it reminds me of one of my the best not the best chef but one of the best cooks and like the best approach to cooking that i ever heard was a guy I lived with in valencia and he was australian and the kind of guy who brought had his own set of knives and brought them around with him he was that good of a cook. He wasn't a cook by trade. He was a professional sailor, but he was that invested in cooking that he had his own better knives. And his approach was, and I'll never forget this, it was like 2006, I think. I was a freshman or a sophomore, end of my sophomore year, maybe. So whenever that was. Whenever we started 2004. Yeah, we started 4 five, 5, it was 5 6. So I'm living with these Australian guys in Valencia and his approach to cooking was he never shopped for a recipe or he would follow recipes, but never shopped to a recipe. He would go to a supermarket or farmer's market or anything and he would find the freshest ingredients that he could. Anything that looked good or fresh, he'd buy. And then he'd come back and in the best use of Google I've ever seen, he would plug in everything that he found at the market into Google. And it would inevitably turn up a recipe because all it does is it matches, like all Google does is match things. And so obviously like some things would be missing, right? Like maybe he was missing one or two ingredients out of this recipe, but he otherwise had everything. And he would, he'd be like, okay, well, I don't have X, but I can substitute this. And in the end, he just had this incredible ability to go with the flow and augment the recipe based on what he had. And it was amazing. And he never, he would never print out a list of like, oh, I need 12 ingredients to make this recipe. And by right. doing that, he always had the key ingredients on hand. And he could flip between one thing or another thing. If he didn't like a recipe, he would pick a different one. Like, and it was amazing. I was like, that to me speaks so much more to how you're supposed to be cooking than, oh, someone gave me 
a recipe and I went and bought 20 ingredients and then did it. And now I'm never going to use those ingredients again. Right. Mm -hmm. He wanted the very fresh ingredients. He had all the basics and then it was up to him to create. Right. He, he saw the recipe as a suggestion. He was like, Oh, they gave me this cool recipe with these great ingredients and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to do what I want. And it was awesome. And I, like that was the best approach to cooking that I've seen in such a long time. Because everyone these days is fixated on this recipe, this, again, nothing against cookbooks or celebrity chefs or anything like that, but like you don't need their version of something. <laughs> it's, it's okay, it's fine. Like you can make that and you can print it out and <laughs> follow it to a T and you'll probably end up with the same result. Or you could just say like, hey, this ingredient didn't look that fresh this week. They didn't have ginger, so I swapped out, like, whatever it is. And it just, more holistic approach to cooking is always better. That's some profound wisdom right there. I think you're, I think you're right. Like you said, it's, it's starting from the, from the front instead of the back, right? It's like, what do we have and what do we create versus, like, what do, I want to, what do I want this to look like? And then, I mean, God bless you if you can make it look like a picture in their, you know, in their celebrity cookbook. But one of the best examples I've heard is, I think people recently they're talking about coating or like mayonnaise is like a really big and useful it's a chef's tool really when you want to coat like chicken or anything and make it more moist or like kind of seal in the flavor because what is mayonnaise they're very base level eggs vinegar oil. <laughs> like it's and that's it right and so you would in theory use all those things separately so mm -hmm. why does it why is it crazy to anyone to use mayonnaise as um, an emollient or like a sealant or anything like that? And so things like that are what make it work. And people get this idea that like, oh my God, mayonnaise, something that goes on some horrible bologna sandwich for, you know, <laughs> a grade school kid. And that's just like, that's not what it is. Like mm -hmm. break it down, you sear mayonnaise on the grill, it's gonna basically turn out to be a moisturizing mm -hmm. agent. It's going to caramelize. It's going to help moisturize. It's like, you can do a lot of things that you didn't even think of, yeah. right? So, like, don't be afraid of it. Yeah. And the other, so I know this is, like, I think we're probably winding down time, but cooking-wise, the other, this guy's other great advice was there are three stages to cooking in his mind. Stage one is I can cook basic elements. I can make pasta. I can toast bread i can make sandwich right like i i just do basic things step two is i can follow and then augment a recipe right so like i can see this recipe and then i can kind of tailor it like we were just discussing right to whatever i want step three and the most important step is i can create the elements of what i want in a recipe so that comes to like, oh, I can make a stock. I can make a sauce. I can start with really just elements and compose an entire meal. And when you hit stage three, that's how you know you're like, okay, now, now I can cook and I'm like not afraid of anything at all. True power right there. I can't do that, by the way. <laughs> We need a few more things from Bed Bath and Beyond. It always, it, it, it always, it always, it always sounded good. <laughs> like, like it's so, 
this is a guy who wouldn't uh, make curry unless he could get the right kind of fish sauce. <laughs> take 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 that for what it's worth. Yeah, you had 15 years to catch up to him. You know, maybe a little bit longer. I don't know, man. I got to move out of my like studio apartment. Get a get a chef's kitchen. <laughs> well, yep. Then we'll start talking about what to make. Hey, then, then we can do something different. We can record together and uh, and cook together. That would be that would be fun. In the meantime, we can make bread. Fine. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for the for the wisdom, for the for your thoughts and your perspectives, and uh, you know, let you let you escape back into the sidewalk sidewalk experience here in New York. But we will definitely catch up soon. Uh, Brian, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I hope that everyone makes it out of the current circumstances intact. And with that, I'd like to thank Blaze once again. Thanks for the evergreen reminder that we are invincible and inspiring us to continue to pay forward our culinary growth, discoveries, and gifts. Stay safe. We'll talk soon.